Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is Thursday, the thirteenth of October, twenty twenty-two. I'm Carmen LaVerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen here on Faith Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to have you um, visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. And while you're there, share with us the um, the name of your pastor. We are acknowledging uh, Pastor Appreciation Month by reaching out to pastors and um, telling them we appreciate them and also, you know, sending them a little gift so that they can enjoy a cup of coffee. Maybe they will share it with you. You can have coffee with Carmen and coffee with your pastor. Yeah, there you go. You can tell your pastor what we're talking about here um, every day, and you can you can connect us with each other. I'd love that. That'd be fantastic. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Again, we're continuing our conversation in the Sermon on the Mount, which you can read the entirety of in about 18 minutes. So if you think about the time that you spend doing other things today. Where in the Word are you going to be? Maybe you could spend some time, 18 minutes, just reading the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says here, when you give to the needy, now first of all, that's a when, not an if. Mm -hmm. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So there's a conversation here about, you know, the um, before whom do we do our uh, our acts of um, service to the Lord, um, before whose eyes and for whose glory and to what um, reward. And so don't let your right hand, let you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. This is the, um, you know, don't don't be giving in order to get particularly the con- the congratulations or exaltation of the world. Um, be doing it because it's there to do. The poor are always with us, and it's our responsibility to steward the resources that God has given us by providing for the needs of those who are genuinely unable to uh, provide for themselves. A couple of headlines this morning before we bring our friend Ben Johnson on uh, to talk with us about some um, some things going on in the culture. Here's a couple of headlines. Um, the Supreme Court will not hear a case uh, that was seeking to establish a constitutional right to life for the preborn person. So the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday declined to decide whether fetuses, preborn humans, are entitled to the constitutional rights in light of the June ruling overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. So we call that now the Dobbs decision. Um, so it looks like the court is, you know, steering clear of the conversation about whether or not the preborn person enjoys the same rights as um, as those of us who, you know, have been born. And this is an effort by those who are reborn Christians to um, to highlight uh, the the need for constitutional protections for preborn human beings. So 
This was an appeal by a Catholic group and two women. Um, Now, the court, a lower court had already ruled that fetuses lack the proper legal standing um, to to challenge, you know, like their right to be aborted or the right of their mothers to abort them. And so the two women who brought the case were pregnant at the time. Um, They sued on behalf of their unborn children And those uh, children have now been born because this case was brought uh, four years ago now. Um, Social Security recipients, that might include you. You're going to be notified today uh, that you are going to get a boost in your benefits starting next year. The increase is expected to be the largest in 40 years. So expecting that announcement to be made today. Um, The increase in Social Security benefits is being fueled by Record high inflation. It is designed to help cover the costs of everyday items like food and fuel and other goods and services. It's not going to start until the first of the year. Um, and so whether or not that actually, you know, like the promise of money coming, whether or not that will affect the way people vote in the midterms is unknown. But certainly the timing of it is curious just weeks before the midterm elections. Um, and yes, for those of you who are wondering, the boost in benefits is going to be coupled with a drop in Medicare Part B premiums, Um, the idea there being that uh, we want people to get the full impact of that increase in their Social Security benefits. So there you go. Uh, Now, when it comes to sin, what's your excuse? When it comes to sin, what's your excuse? Could it be that you were born a sinner? That's basically the defense of the Parkland shooter. We're going to talk with Ben Johnson about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson joining us now. You can find what he is writing at WashingtonStand.com. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you as always. It's wonderful to have you. Let's uh, let's lead off with the uh, the Parkland shooter and uh, the defense being offered um, that he was poisoned in the womb. Um, I think this is a good opportunity for us to talk about original sin and human responsibility. And I couldn't agree more. It's always a good time, but particularly when it's acknowledged in court. Uh, in this case, I think maybe a lot of uh, listeners would not be as sympathetic simply because of the fact it's being used to skirt responsibility for uh, such a, a terrible crime. Uh, what, what, of course, we're talking about is the Parkland shooting, uh, the shooter, Nicholas Cruz, who, when he was 19, entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in Florida, opened fire, and uh, he's entered a guilty plea. So there's no question that there's going to be a punishment. The question is whether that's going to be life imprisonment or the death penalty. And uh, that issue right now is with jurors. But in his summation and in in his defense, his defense attorney offered this argument. She said that uh, he had a terrible childhood, which is incontestable. (laughs) It's not contestable when you look at the facts of it. Uh, It's simply the reality of it. He had a terrible childhood. Uh, And the argument that she used specifically was that he was, and this is the quote, poisoned in the womb. Uh, specifically that his mother was um, 
an addict. She used alcohol while uh, he was in utero. She used other substances when he was in utero. Uh, she would steal. She would uh, uh, she would commit crimes in order to uh, to pay for the drugs that uh, fueled the the terrible uh, childhood that he had and the terrible life that uh, she was involved in. Now, again, he's saying he was poisoned from the womb, and you and I would say, of course, that's correct. But we wouldn't say that he was poisoned with drugs. We would say that he was poisoned with the sin of the fall. That's that's the poison that's coursing through him and through you and me and everyone else who is listening. Uh, because at the very commencement of the human race, the very first two uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, disregarded the instructions of God. They attempted to uh, become God at the instigation of Satan. And because of that, the entire human experience, as well as all of the earthly creation, has turned against itself. Uh, it's rejected the image and the likeness of God in which it was created, and naturally we are sinful. Uh, we are naturally more inclined to commit sin than we are anything else. Now, the the issue there, of course, then becomes our responsibility to struggle against that sin. It does not excuse sin, as the Apostle uh, talks about. He said, is, is, does that mean then that uh, God is the author of sin? Heaven forbid. In fact, uh, God is the one who has given us the law in order to make us understand our sin, our need for a Savior, and our need to surrender our lives to him, to be led by the Spirit, and uh, to cooperate with the Spirit in fighting against the sin that, is, uh, that so easily besets us. And uh, so there, there is no excuse for those of us who are in this. Uh, I don't think the jury is going to find it terribly persuasive either. But it's interesting that he's talking about the fact that he was born sinful and is uh, essentially that's what manifests itself, and uh, it certainly did. I mean, we all know that, uh, I mean, even the smallest of children, right? I mean, they're little sinners. We know that. We experience it when we're trying to parent or grandparent them. Um, I also think that, you know, those of us who are genuinely pro-life from conception to natural death have an opportunity here to say, um, you know, how can a person of this age and stage of life describe himself as poisoned in the womb if he was not already yet a person in the womb? Like, there does seem to be an appeal here to... Um, the reality that this person is a person even before he is born. And, you know, just that's every time I can point it out, I do. Let's talk about um, the very real harms that are done to people through the use and abuse of drugs, including marijuana. I mean, certainly when we, if we're going to talk about a poisoning taking place in this individual um, as a byproduct of his mother's use of alcohol and other drugs, then there seems an opportunity here to talk about what drugs do to us. Um, this, uh, this leads me to lift up what you have currently uh, posted at WashingtonStand.com. So can we talk about this uh, deep dive uh, into how marijuana harms us mentally, physically, and financially in just a moment, Ben? I would be delighted. Thank you. Great. Yeah. So we got Ben Johnson with us this morning, and we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, the reality that people who have medical marijuana cards, um, yeah, yeah, it is having a significant impact on their lives, but maybe not the one that the law intended. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do on the Faith Radio Network every day. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources waiting for you to take advantage of and share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Um, this is a community of believers, and we gather together here and 
We all need prayer, and, well, we'd love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer. We pray for specific requests every single week when we gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff. So share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com, and then be assured of our prayers for you in the Spirit of Christ. Check it all out at MyFaithRadio.com. Continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson, you can find what we're discussing at WashingtonStand.com. All right, Ben, read us in um, on the use of marijuana as a you know medical supplement um, and the impact that having a medical marijuana card uh, is having on patients. Well, thank you so much for discussing this because this is a major public health issue. And uh, the fact of the matter is not only do people not know the harms that marijuana can cause, but we're at a sort of a big tobacco level, uh, Orwellian kind of view right now in society. Most people believe that marijuana is a cure, uh, that it helps people. Uh, It's prescribed as medicinal marijuana, so-called. There's been a a 20-year campaign financed uh, more than $70 million to convince people that marijuana is medicine. And uh, at certain kinds of um, uh, extracts that can be taken from marijuana without any intoxicating effects have been shown to have some very small uh, residual effects on people uh, that are are positive. However, marijuana itself, uh, particularly the high THC, high potency marijuana that has, that has, uh, profligated uh, in the last 20 to 30 years has intensely harmful effects. Uh, what has happened is that uh, marijuana has become much more potent. The, uh, the uh, compound that is addictive in marijuana, THC, has increased from anywhere from 2 to 5% back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s up to, you can now get extracts that are 95 to 99%. So uh, THC Uh, The more THC that you get, the less of any kind of medical impact that you get that's positive and the more that you get that's negative. Uh, So there was a study done in in March. uh, One of the people involved was from Harvard, and they said, and this is a quote, acquisition of a medical marijuana card increased the incidence and severity of cannabis use disorder, which is to say uh, an extreme form of addiction, and resulted in no significant improvement in pain. So in other words, if, if you have this uh, medical marijuana card, you're more likely to, uh, to become addicted. About 30% of people, uh, according to most studies, who, uh, who try marijuana will become addicted to it, particularly the high-potency kind of high-THC marijuana or cannabis. And there is no improvement in their physical state. Uh, one of the things that uh, this piece that I posted at WashingtonStand.com goes through, it goes through 14 different ways that marijuana harms people. And most people uh, use marijuana in order to reduce anxiety. This is actually one of the things THC instigates. Uh, it, it worsens anxiety in people. And so you fall into this terrible spiral where people have high anxiety, they turn to marijuana as a cure, and then the THC causes anxiety, and they think, oh my gosh, this, this is, uh, it's just wearing off. This is why I needed the marijuana in the first place. So they get involved in this vicious cycle of making their own symptoms worse and not realizing it. Um, And then, of course, the very worst thing, particularly in a developing brain, a developing adolescent brain, which isn't fully formed until the early to mid-20s, is that uh, study after study has shown for decades 
that uh, marijuana use, particularly during adolescence, during that time, and also in the womb, by the way, going back to our previous conversation, has been shown to radically increase the amount of psychoses that people suffer. So schizophrenia, extreme mental illness, all of that is worsened by marijuana use. Mm. Um, Ben, can we um, pivot and have a conversation about college, um, particularly Christian students choosing colleges, and then also what we are learning about um, the, the populations on college campuses today. I'm looking at um, a couple of different findings recently about, you know, like uh, who actually constitutes on-campus, you know, life on schools across the country. And I'm looking at, you know, these numbers that say on college campuses, particularly among the like 150 most elite institutions across the country, some of them, um, you know, obviously on the East and West Coasts, but many of them, you know, in, in what we would call flyover country, on campus, some 40% of um, students at liberal arts colleges um, identify as LGBT or Q. 40%. I mean, that's so... F- and, and there are 2.5 liberals on campus for every conservative. I mean, when we talk about what's happening on college campuses across the country and what our future leaders are going to... Like, they're led to believe by the people that they go to college with that this is normal. And it's not, it's not normal in the culture writ large. No, it isn't. Uh, the figure that you cited uh, is that, uh, uh, for example, in some, some college campuses, 40% of the population identifies as LGBTQ. Uh, that's 10 times the, the uh, highest number ever found in society from Gallup or other uh, polling institutions. So uh, when you believe that uh, almost half of the population is LGBTQ, it certainly affects the way that you look at things. Um, you know, we've had studies for years that people radically overestimate the prevalence of, uh, of homosexuality and also transgender issues that uh, they believe many, many more times people uh, of a percentage of the population struggle with this than truly do. And as a result, you, be- you begin to think that uh, we need to have certain kinds of policies because it affects so many people. So it primes people, sort of baptizes them in social liberalism, and it primes them to support left-wing causes. Now, uh, the, the drift of the ivory tower to the left has been well known uh, for, for more than 100 years, particularly, uh, I guess, uh, the inflection point for many was the, the book God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley Jr. back in the 1950s. So longer than you and I have been alive, this has been a, a well-known issue. But I think it's, it's worthwhile pointing out the data that you've looked at, uh, that, uh, for example, in Ivy League schools, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, the, the uh, the percentage of students is perhaps 10% conservative, 75% liberal. And that doesn't talk about anything when you get into the faculty lounge. Uh, so there's there's a, a question of which is influencing which. Do you have liberal students who are seeking out liberal professors and conservatives who are seeking out conservatives? I think there's a good bit of uh, of evidence for that. However, when it comes to campus, there can be no doubt that campuses and you know, to a lesser degree as we've discussed in uh, certain aspects of public school you get this indoctrination effect that is taking place where liberal uh, crusaders uh, in in some of their views are trying to replicate their views within students especially in college settings uh, that they are trying to assure that uh, they are proselytizing on behalf of social secularism and uh, that of course 
is part of the reason I believe that you see conservatives seeking out conservative professors uh, because they are looking for a, a more um, a traditional view when it comes particularly to sexual issues, but also uh, other biblical issues. And this has become an issue even on evangelical or, or uh, conservative campuses like Grove City College, uh, where there's been an uproar over certain kinds of teachings uh, in many uh, what uh, many universities that are affiliated with uh, Christian denominations or that proclaim themselves Christians, uh, there has been a drift to embrace LGBTQ causes. And so there's been a, a real fight on campus to try and preserve a more traditional biblical view of uh, the human person, of human sexuality, because these institutions prime people, uh, they teach them, and uh, this is the reserve of information that they're going to use for many years going forward. This is the only time where you have a dedicated amount of time of leisure to study and to reflect on uh, world worldview, to be informed in the way that the world works. And so people desperately need a good education during this time and one that reflects their biblical faith. Yeah, there's a, um, a complimentary article that people might be interested in reading in the Religion News Service um, are the culture wars changing how Christian students choose colleges? You see it's a Christian college, and then immediately ask, what kind of Christian college is it, one student said. Um, ben, I think people do that with churches as well. You know, like, right, hey, it says it's a Presbyterian church. What kind of Presbyterian church is it? Or it says it's a Baptist church. What kind of what kind of Baptist church is it? The conversation about what it means to be a Christian and certainly what it means to be a Christian institution in the culture today um, is one that has to be, you know, parsed parsed out. You got to ask a lot of questions, and you have to be very discerning um, in terms of how you listen to the answers that are given. Because not everybody is using well, everybody's using the same words, but not everybody means the same thing by the words that they use. So it's always helpful to walk around in this with you. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. My pleasure, as always. Thank you so much, and God bless. You too. It's an intellectual feast. All right, that's Ben Johnson. You can find him at Washington. Stand, uh, where he is, uh, where he is writing, WashingtonStand.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. Midterm elections are just weeks away, and you say to yourself, yes, but this is Christian radio, so this is not uh, politics. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've walked around in life lately, but um, pretty much everything has become politicized. I find that grievous, but it's true nonetheless. Um, and so how are, um, how are you going to vote would be one question. How are you going to approach how you vote is a different question. So here here is my answer to the how are you going to vote question? I'm going to vote truth over tribe. There you go. I'm going to vote truth over tribe. If you've read my book, um, Speak the Truth, How to Bring God Back into Every Conversation, you know that this is at the very heartbeat of um, how I think we need to be approaching the conversations of the day. Truth over tribe. Why is that? Well, because I pledge allegiance to Christ. The way, um, the way Patrick Miller and Keith Simon have articulated that same thing, truth over tribe, is this, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. So that's a good question, good provocative question for you and I to be asking today as Christians. 
is my highest allegiance to Christ, and then are all of my other allegiances, including the allegiance that I might pledge to a particular flag or nation or state or ideology or idea, are all of my other allegiances um, in not only subordinate to, but in service of my allegiance to the Lamb. So I'll confess to you, I am uh, part of a growing movement among Christians in the United States of America who are seeking to change the conversation. Like, you know, it's, it's tactical. I'm in it for a reason. The temperature and the tone, I'm seeking to change both of those. I'm, I'm seeking to understand why we're tribal and what tribalism is doing to us. And I'm seeking to leave political tribalism behind for the hope that is offered in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And yes, to him alone, I pledge my allegiance. Truth over tribe. We're going to have that conversation next with author Patrick Miller. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ministry has changed um, pretty radically uh, since many people started thinking about whether or not they were going to go to church and if they were going to go to church, what church they were going to go to. Patrick Miller is um, a, he oversees digital ministries. That's not even something that existed when I graduated from seminary in 1993. So I'm curious to know what it looks like to oversee digital ministries at the crossing, but I'm most interested in talking with Patrick about the book that he has co-authored with his friend Keith Simon. Uh, The book is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Patrick, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. It's fantastic to be here with you. What what does a digital minister do? (laughs) That's a great question. If you know the answer, you can tell me. Uh, You you know, in, in our new world of digital technology, social media, uh, the church is having to figure out how, how do we orient ourselves. You know, 500 years ago when the printing press was invented, the reformers had to look at it and say, well, what will we do with this thing? And at the time, it was being used to spread gossip pamphlets, conspiracy theories. And the reformers, they said, you know what we could do? We could spread translations of the Bible in people's actual languages. We could spread those across Europe. That's exactly what they did. That was a huge part of why the Reformation took root in Europe. And I think we're in a similar moment right now. We're on kind of the dark end of seeing how social media is spreading all kinds of misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories. It's polarizing us. It's breaking apart communities. And that's exactly why we need some gospel antibiotics inside of our uh, digital bodies so that we can become healthy. And that's what a digital ministry is really all about. It's about giving people healthy content that helps them to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to grow in their faith. It uses all the tools that you know Netflix and Hulu and Disney, all of them are using to reach people and to change their minds and hearts, and instead uses it to draw people who are far from God to God and those who do know God deep with Jesus. And that's really at the heart of what we do in our digital ministry. I I love it. Um, This effort to reach everyone everywhere by all means possible um, today certainly means the use of digital media. So thank you so much. Um, Talk with us about the the reality that we live in. We all know we live in a a polarized or even tribalized political reality. Um, but you and and Keith, I love the way that you start the conversation, and it's about a friend 
who attends family reunions on a regular basis. I have friends like that. In fact, I know I have a friend listening right now. Her name is Angela. And every year her family gets together for a, you know, like now three or four generation family reunion every summer. And that changed pretty radically in 2016-ish and the conversations that they were willing to have with each other and who was willing to stay next to who in a cabin and cook dinner together and and on and on and on. Talk with us about where we are and how we got here in terms of political tribalism in America today. Well, your friend Angela must be a saint because uh, I personally do not she love is. family reunions. <laughs> but there are those people who truly do love their families and have a friend just like that. This family had been meeting together for 37 years with over 100 people. I mean, that's how much these people loved each other. That's how much they loved seeing each other. And at one particular family reunion, much like your friend in 2016, I I, I don't know what happened. Maybe people drank too much. But it, what, what, what ended up happening is someone started yelling out about how they were going to vote for Donald Trump and someone else in the family, because it was a politically diverse family, was a never Trumper. And they started shouting back that, no, I would never vote for someone like Donald Trump. And normally those kinds of debates would just stay at the family reunion. You'd forget about it. You come back next year and pretend like it never happened. But there's Facebook and they had a Facebook group for their family. And so this argument, it continues online and it gets so bad. There's one family member, a a young man with kids. He dies of brain cancer and people on the other side of the political aisle from him, they boycott his funeral. It it gets even worse. There's there's funerals, there's weddings and people are disinvited from them based on their politics. So this family that was once gathering together to celebrate their love for one another for 37 years in, in one year, in 2016, everything breaks apart. It has not been the same since. And the question that Keith and I ask when we hear stories like this, is that is that really the world that we want to live in? Is this really the reality that we want to have? Are these the kind of churches that we want to be a part of? Is this the kind of society that we want to be a part of, where uh, what matters most is our politics, not our shared faith in Jesus? What matters most is our politics, not what we share as human beings made in the image of God. And it's no surprise what our answer is going to be. No, we don't want to live in that world, but we really think Jesus is the only one who can lead us out of our tribal echo chambers and take us to something greater, something bigger that can unite us. The book is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Um, uh, Talk with us. uh, Invite people online because there's probably um, a super easy way to connect with this conversation online. Yeah, if you want to hear more about what we're doing, you can buy the book on any major bookseller. You can visit our website, choosetruthovertribe.com. We also have a podcast called Truth Over Tribe. We're not very creative people. We pick one name and we stick with it, uh, where we talk about these exact kinds of conversations. Choosetruthovertribe.com is the website. You can find everything that we're talking about today with Patrick there, choosetruthovertribe.com. Um, Patrick, let's jump into the book. I mean, you know, I guess here's the question. Can Jesus really heal what tribalism has broken? I mean, is there any hope? I, I, I'm not by nature a cynical person, and I have a tremendous amount of hope that Jesus can heal these things. And here's why. Because tribalism is not anything new. You can go to any time in history, and you will find tribalism, polarization. You'll find these things at work. Now, it might look different depending on your environment, but this was true back in Jesus's day. The early church was riven. It was, it was, it was breaking apart because some people were Jewish, some people were Gentiles, and the Apostle Paul had to figure out, how do I bring these people together? And what he 
realized was that before the foot of the cross, we are all the same. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jewish or a Gentile. You are a sinner before a holy and living God. You are the same. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. You've been promised resurrection in Christ. You've been promised that you will share in a renewed creation with him. And because those promises are the same, you are the same. And that's what Jesus does. It's not so much that he takes us out of tribalism. It's that he creates a new kind of tribe. But the Jesus tribe is so different from other tribes. I, I almost hesitate to even call it that because in this tribe, everybody is welcome. There is no one who is not welcome to come in and be a part of his tribe. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your gender. You are welcome here. But on the other side, it's one of the only tribes in human history that's been told your job is not to put yourself first, but to put the other tribes first. And for all those reasons, it's like the anti-tribe tribe. It's not against other people. It's for other people. It's not closed to other people. It's open to other people. There's no other tribe like this. And that's why Jesus really is the only answer to the problem of tribalism. All right. Now, Patrick, <clears throat> there are definitely people listening right now who say Patrick sounds like a raging liberal. Does he not know that, right, there are things that make a person a Christian and then there are things, you know, that are outside of that? So can you can you just address the resistance, I think, that in particular maybe evangelical Christians have to precisely what you just said? Because I'm I'm with you and I and I understand that Jesus is for everyone, right? The offer of the gospel is for everyone, but not everyone um, accepts or receives the offer of of the good news. And so, can we talk a little bit about this? Is not a um, this is not the idea that everybody's automatically in the Jesus tribe, um, but that those who are in Christ, their life is different. It's marked by Christ in ways that are significant and influential in the world. Yes, I, I am about as far from a universalist as you can get. So if that's what anybody heard, I, I, I misspoke. <laughs> Let me be crystal clear. Everybody is welcome. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to accept the offer. You and me, when Jesus reached out to us, we were not perfect. We did not have our lives together. If you looked at us, we would be a mess. And that's the thing. Jesus welcomes everybody in. But when we come in, we don't ever end up staying the same. He's going to transform us. He's going to change us. And so that's my point. Maybe if I frame this a little bit differently, it will highlight the issue. Right now in America, we are having a major depression of social capital. Social capital is just being rich in relationships. What's fascinating is that the area Areas of our country which are rich in capital, they are the uh, elite liberal enclaves where most people graduated from college. Uh, and why they're rich in these things is because they have wealth. They can pay to go to the country club. They can pay to go to hot yoga. They can be in the neighborhood that has the HOA. They have all of these little middle institutions where they can build thick relationships. But what they all share in common is that you have to have something. You must be wealthy. You must be educated to be a part of it. That's what makes the church different than anywhere else. In a single day of my life, I might have breakfast with an ex-con, lunch with a drug addict. Uh, I might end up having dinner with a CEO and a business owner. We might end up having uh, a single mom over for dessert afterwards. That's what the church is like. It, it's for everyone. It's for the wealthy. It's for the poor. It's for those who have much and those who have little. It's for those who've been in prison and those who haven't been in prison. And, and that's not what our wealthy enclaves create. Those are only for the haves. The church is for the haves and the have-nots. And that's what I mean when I say Jesus is different, this this club, this tribe, if you will, it is welcome to everyone. Yeah, that's really good. That's, uh, you know, I'm reminded here about the Corinthians who, you know, some of them who had so much were showing up 
with these feasts. And then there were people who were completely left out. And Paul's like, that's that's, that's not how we're going to operate. It's just not how we're going to operate um, as Christians in community with one another. We're talking with um, with Patrick Miller. The book is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. And next up, that's going to be my question. Like, what does that look like? What does it look like? Or what does it even mean to pledge allegiance to the lamb and not the donkey or the elephant? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. But the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says do not be afraid. Anne is uh, texting us online saying, well, I know what uh, Patrick is talking about. We've been canceled by our family. Uh, We've not been invited to Thanksgiving or Christmas for the last two years because we don't vote in the same way that they vote. Um, Yeah, this is resonating. So we're talking with uh, Patrick Miller. He's the co-author of Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. You can, um, you can find Patrick, the book, uh, and other resources at choosetruthovertribe.com. Patrick, um, what does it look like or what does it even mean to pledge allegiance to the Lamb and not the donkey or the elephant? It's a fantastic question, and I think it's a question everyone needs to ask. But but let me start here because I, I think some people will start getting defensive when they hear our subtitle, and they'll think that what we're saying is you can't be a Republican or maybe you can't be a Democrat. And that's not the point of our book. We, we aren't trying to convince people to, to leave their party behind. What we are trying to do is getting people to put their allegiance to Jesus ahead of their political allegiances. That's the key. That's what we want. Here's the deal. Jesus, when in in the Great Commission, he called us to make disciples. He didn't tell us to win elections. Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, and we're convinced that what really matters is who's in the Oval Office. And I always want to tell people, look, Jesus could go to the Oval Office, but that would be a demotion. That would be a a, a net loss for him. He has a far higher throne. And so when Christians start getting fixated on the horse race in Washington and thinking that everything hinges on this as though the world is going to end, they forget the reality that Jesus sits on the throne. Jesus is king. He is sovereign. We don't have to worry about it. I've, I've been studying the book of Daniel recently, and this is one of the most striking features of the book of Daniel is that him and his friends – they're, they're, they're non-defensive. I mean, at one point, they literally say, yeah, we, we don't have to defend ourselves. It says that Daniel spoke to the king with wisdom and tact. He's non-anxious. In other words, he has this idea that, yes, I, I know I'm not the one who's in charge here. Yes, I know that Nebuchadnezzar, he's a proud man. He's a brash man. He's an angry man. He's an idolater. He, he can look around his society, Babylon, and see the prostitution and see the sexual idolatry and all the problems with it. And yet he doesn't come in with an ax ready to tear down the idols and win this culture back for God. Instead, 
instead, he tries to be a faithful, non-anxious presence where he's at. And as a result, he is given influence. God is the one who ultimately deals with Nebuchadnezzar and deals with Nebuchadnezzar's son. And so, so when we start realizing that Jesus is on the throne, he is sovereign, he's in charge, it, just, it, it frees me from being so worried about what's happening in Washington. Now, again, my point is not that we shouldn't care about elections. It's not that we shouldn't care about politics. My point is that we should care about them maybe a little bit less than what we care about them right now. And we should make sure that our allegiance to Jesus comes first. Mm. Um, Kim is uh, is on the text line right now. Hey, you guys can text me. Just a reminder, 877-933-2484. Kim says we are experiencing this exact same thing at our family reunion. Yeah. Mm. She's also meeting with her uh, Bible study group tonight for their fall kickoff. And Truth Over Tribe is what she's going to suggest that they all read together. So there mm. you go. There you go. Um, this is resonating and Patrick, it's resonating for a reason because we're all living in the midst of this. Um, the, you know, it's not just a question of who I'm going to vote for that. That is, I mean, that is certainly a responsibility that I bear as a citizen of a particular country, but this goes so far beyond that, right? This is about how I carry myself in the moment by moment, um, conversations of the day. Am I living as a person, um, whose first allegiance is to Jesus and I am going to treat everyone I encounter, um, whether or not they are being in a given moment a donkey or an elephant, um, I am still going to treat them as the lamb would treat them, right? This is about me representing Christ in, um, in a tribalized culture. And Jesus entered incarnationally into a totally tribalized culture. I mean, even in his own day, he came to his own people, the people that were his own, and they didn't receive him. His own technical tribe didn't receive him. Um, and, and then ultimately he reached beyond what, you know, should have been his technical tribe of Jews and he extends the goodness of God's grace to everyone. And I'm, I'm a part of that everyone. Like I'm, I am a Gentile believer. I'm not a Jewish believer. And so when we think about the breaking down of the dividing walls of hostility between us. I mean, we are talking about something that Jesus has always been about and that the Jesus people today, we need to be these kind of people in the culture in in which we are living, but it is hard. And I think you and I would both acknowledge that. It is hard. Oh, it is incredibly difficult. It's difficult on two levels. It's difficult internally because we are all, uh, by default, tribal. I think about when uh, Jesus is going through Samaria with the disciples and the Samaritans don't want Jesus to come in. And James and John thinks think it's a great idea to reach out to the Prince of Peace and say, hey, should we napalm this village? Let's just call fire down on these people. And Jesus rebukes them. Now, the question, of course, is why did they want to call fire down on the Samaritans? Well, there's a long history of hatred and animosity between Jews and Samaritans, but maybe most fundamentally, chances are James and John did not know any Samaritans. I mean, when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan, it shocked people because to the average Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. But again, they didn't know Samaritans. They didn't have relationships that broke their stereotypes of Samaritans. And later on, the book of Acts, when the, when the gospel goes out to Samaria, there's a good chance that people in that village that James and John wanted to napalm, 
they came to Christ. They may have even worshiped in the same church as James and John. And so now you're thinking about them sitting, you know, next to people who they wanted to destroy once upon a time, but now they're next to them as brothers and sisters because of Jesus. How does that change how you conceptualize the world? You realize that my worst apparent enemies out there could be my most beloved brother and sister. And that's, again, this is how Jesus radically transforms that internal tribal uh, drive inside of each of us. Patrick, you've got people thinking, um, Jim and Mary and Carol and Kim and Ann, lots of people on the text line right now. Um, uh, and one of the observations that uh, that Jim uh, is making here um, on the text line is, um, is this conversation about the way we think about reconciliation um, or division um, and that this is generational and it's not just over politics and that there are um, children who have walked away from their families in much the same way that the prodigal did. Um, and there are ways in which parents have walked away from their children or grandparents from their grandchildren um, because of choices made. And so I just think that um, there's lots of layers to these conversations and you are inviting us into them. So let's uh, let's one more time. Let's invite people um, to join this growing movement of Christians in America who are choosing truth over tribe. Yeah, I, 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 it's my prayer right now that God is going to mobilize people across the country, across many churches and institutions to have a vision of choosing uh, the lamb, giving their allegiance to the lamb over the elephant and the donkey. And what I'm discovering is that it doesn't matter how uh, maybe political you think your church is. These people who, who say, I want to put Jesus first, they are in every church. And what we have to do is find one another and we have to hold hands and we have to say, Jesus, you're in charge. You see, it's really easy to become anxious as the person who wants to be anti-tribal. That's <laughs> the person who says, hey, let's not fight over these things. Let's not make these things central. We can become the anxious person. We have to remember, no, he is on the throne. He has history in his hands. It might feel really bad right now. We might feel like we're losing relationships. We might feel overwhelmed by anxiety, but he is the one in charge. And so we can trust him. Let's just be faithful with what he's given us. All right. And if you can't get all the way to Columbia, Missouri to visit with Patrick at The Crossing Church, you can do so at thecrossingchurch.com because he is one of the pastors of digital relationships, which means you can connect with him directly. Um, Patrick Miller is his name. Thecrossingchurch.com is the church website. Choose truthovertribe.com is the website for these conversations specifically related to this movement. Patrick, um, thank you so much. Look forward to having future conversations with you as well. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Carmen. Absolutely. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. Hey, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Sometimes um, we get discouraged by, you know, like big media or big data or social media. Um, let me encourage you today. 12 million people heard the gospel. 12 million people heard the gospel. And the overwhelming majority of them um, heard it for the very first time during a three-day, three-day broadcast memorial service following the death of a Christian who was a well-known actress in Thailand. You say to yourself, what? Yep, 
12 million people tuned in over the course of three days to this memorial service, and and thousands of them have come to Christ. It's just extraordinary. Many of them um, said they had never heard the gospel. There's opportunity everywhere. Let's be a part of it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.